Let's take our Bibles, please, as we do our Bible study, talking about this Christ and His greatness and goodness. We're going to 2 Kings, 2 Kings 6. Thank you for being here today. I appreciate that you would take the time to come and worship with us this morning, if this is your first time, as well as our church family. Thank you for being here. We are in 2 Kings. We're doing a study on the life of Elijah and then following with Elisha. Let me tell you a story about an individual. His name is Luigi Teresio. He's an individual who was of no real consequence or fame at any, anything that he did in his life. In fact, he was kind of just an average person. And this average person just had an average house and he had kind of by himself all these years, didn't have a family as far as a wife, but had other relatives and nephews and nieces. And he passed away, and when he did, the family gathered to be able to take care of some of the things. They went into his house, and it, his house didn't have much, because he didn't have much, everybody thought. And so they went through, they looked at the possessions, and there they didn't see a whole lot of different things that were anything of value or anything that was significant. It was kind of like, okay, what we can do is just do a public auction or just give away all the different furnishings because there wasn't anything of significance until they went into the attic. When they went into the attic, they were kind of surprised that there in the attic, things were a little bit different. It was much neater. Things were kind of almost set for display except for nothing was on display. And they opened up some drawers, and when they opened up a drawer, they found wrapped in a blanket, they found this violin. And it was a beautiful violin, and they didn't know that their uncle could even play an instrument. But he had this violin. They opened up another drawer, they found another violin. Then they found another one, they found another one, they found another one. When they were all done, they found 246 violins in his attic, including a Stradivarius. There was tens of thousands of dollars of beautiful instruments that he had just been hoarding, that he had just been keeping for himself, and didn't even play them. But he kept all these wonderful instruments that were supposedly able to provide some beautiful, beautiful music that could have been used in the arts, that could have been used to make a big difference, that were silenced for all these years. In 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7, there's a story of something that is wonderful and glorious that is almost silenced the same way that that gentleman did with the violins, but this would have had different consequences. Let's set the scene of what's happening in 2 Kings as we go through our story today. It's the follow-up of what we've been talking about, Elijah and, and Elisha's lives. When we begin 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha, the successor of Elijah, is really, he's at a pinnacle of popularity. He has done well for the nation. If you remember what we talked about last week, he has guided the nation, he has protected the nation, he has been used of God that when Ben-Hadad, the enemy, was sending in marauding bands, different troops to come in and raid, God was allowing him to know exactly when they were coming and where they were coming. And he was exposing these attacks, these secret marauding bands to the king and to the soldiers where he lived, and they were able to repel those different forces. Well, that made him in good standing with the people. And then when Ben-Hadad heard that he, the prophet, was revealing the plans and these secret attacks, Ben-Hadad sent an entire army in secretly at night to capture the man who knew every move of that army in secret. And so then Elisha comes out and he prays that all these soldiers that have come to arrest him and to make problems would be blinded. They're blinded temporarily. He leads them to the capital city of his own king and then he prays and their sight is restored and this, this invading army <coughs> is all of a sudden dis disabled. This invading army is captured. 
They're sent back. None of them are held as prisoners of war, but they're sent back and they don't come back to battle anymore because they've been exposed, because they were captured by one single man. We can imagine the crowds being very, very pleased with Elisha at this moment that he's protecting them, that he's providing for them. But it doesn't last that way. By the end of the next chapter, he is going to be attacked and threatened by his very own king. In fact, his very own king that he's been protecting and helping will say, I want to kill him and send somebody to behead him. What happens is this, is that when we start in 2 Samuel 6, we finish it with verses 23 and 24 into two different stories. And if you look at those, those passages, some will have a problem with this text, and they'll say there's an obvious conflict, therefore this can't be true. Look at what I mean. It says in the end of verse 23, so the bands of the Assyrians came no more into the land of Israel. That's the story we just told you about the invaders that would come in marauding bands sent by the king. And then it says in the next verse, and it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadan, king of Syria, gathered up all of his host and went up and besieged Samaria. You see the conflict? One, one verse says they didn't come, and the next verse says they bring a whole army. And for that reason, there are some people who would say, okay, this is, again, one of those stories in the Bible you can't trust because there's a mistake, there's a contradiction. Not necessarily. It could be referring to two different groups. It could be that the bands were the marauders, the raiders, and then in the next verse, it's the entire army. They were talking different elements of, of who's attacking. That would fit the text and not create a con contradiction. It could be very easily several years past that the marauders, the bands, didn't attack anymore. It doesn't give us a time period. But several years later, then Ben-Hadad comes with a major army. Or it could be that these stories aren't given in a chronological order. That according to these stories, that this second half could have occurred before the first half. We don't know if they're given one, one, or one, two, three in chronological order. There's no reason for us to dispute or discount the passage whatsoever. These, these apparent contradictions are easily explained by one of these other possibilities. Well, what happens is this. Ben-Hadan comes in and he's attacking the city. He's attacking the city where Elisha is, where the king of the Israelites is, and there they're, they're being besieged, and it has to be for a period of time because after, after a period of time, there's a famine that strikes into the city. The famine is bad. Look at the next couple of verses. It describes the famine in this text, that the famine gets so bad that, that some of the people now, their prices for the food are greatly inflated. It gives you the idea in the next couple of verses where it says that, they came and the great famine, verse 25, behold it says the ass's head was sold for four pieces of silver, fourth part of a cab of dung's, uh, dove's dung for five pieces of silver. Pretty graphic, but what he's telling us is that the donkey heads, which were considered very, very poor in nutrition, and by the way was an unclean animal for the Jews to eat, that there's, they're paying a lot of money to just even cook whatever's left. There's not, even, there's not even the wood, there's not even the materials to be able to cook, so to speak. And so they're, they're taking something that is so commonplace, dove's dung, and they're using it, selling it. And so you got this problem with the people all of a sudden that they're, they're wasting and using up everything. In chapter 7, verse 13, it talks about only a few horses left of the king's army that they've probably eaten up the horses as well inside. But what's worse is in verse 28 and 29, it says, and the king who is walking through the city, he sees some lady who comes to him and says, king, 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 please help me out. And he says in verse 28, what ails you? 
She said, this woman said unto me, give, me, give us your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her the next day, give us your son that we may eat him. And she hid her son. And so this woman's mad at the other lady for not cannibalizing her son when she offered the day before. How horrific that these moms are boiling their own sons. That's how bad it's gotten. It's gotten into desperate spots. This is a terrible time. And the king's response is very insightful. <coughs> if you look at the text, the king blames Elisha for it. The king says about Elisha, as you go down into verse 31, he makes the comment, he said, God so do so to me and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphath, shall stand on him by the end of the day. You know, that I'm, I'm going to take him out. I'm going to have him beheaded because this is all Elisha's fault. So what you have here is you have a lesson that strikes me as number one of the first lessons. There's several of them. But let's just make an observation that this is a truism illustrated by this story. That suffering is often the result of sinful choices. Now we're not saying it happens every time. Not all suffering, but in this case it was obvious that what is happening is the people are suffering this great famine. They're under this distress. And it's because they have made some sinful choices. Now, it, it's not every case that this is the time when, like, when you have financial setbacks, when you have an illness, when you pick up a cough and a cold. That doesn't mean necessarily you have done something personally wrong and God is punishing you. We know that that's not every case. We know that in Jesus' ministry, he has even made comment with that, with that blind man that was born blind, that this man hath not sinned nor his parents, but for the glory of God. We know that when Lazarus passed away, Jesus said this was for the glory of God, that you might be able to see the different things. We know that that is not the case every time that something that goes wrong is because of some sinful choice we made. In fact, like in Elisha's case, Elisha didn't make a sinful choice. Others around him did, and he was suffering the consequences of famine as well. Sometimes that happens to us. It's like the Apostle Paul gets caught in a shipwreck. He almost dies and everybody on board, they're rescued, but they go through the trial, not because they've done something wrong, but the captain of the soldiers and the captain of the ship made some terrible choices. That happens to us at times. Somebody else's bad choices may have a residual effect upon us. But in this text, this text shows us the principle, the idea that the bulk of the people have made some sinful choices. They have done some things very wrong. They were warned of this. They were told in, in generations before that you better be careful because if you disobey the Lord, if you violate the Lord's word, you could have a famine like this. In fact, we go all the way back to the book of Leviticus and it reads, after all this, if you do not obey me, God told the people, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chasten you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. You shall eat the flesh of your daughters. He's indicating you could get into the point where you're getting into cannibalism. You'll be that desperate. If you don't obey me, you could all of a sudden keep on going into these really, really awful predicaments. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness for the abundance of everything, therefore you're going to serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, in need of everything. You're going to find yourself in great agony. They shall besiege you at your gates. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons, your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you. In the siege, he says, you're going to become desperate. They've heard. They've known. The word of God gave warning, and yet they didn't change. If we set up the scene and understand what's happening here, we know that they've made some sinful choices. This attack by Ben-Hadad, it was a result, a consequence of their disobedience. 
They have seen the work of God over the last few months. They have heard about Elijah going to heaven. They have seen Elisha all of a sudden bring an enemy army into the city, the very city where this, this siege takes place, and they were blinded. They were delivered from these enemies. They have seen how the enemy armies have been defeated in the past by Elisha, revealing they have seen the hand of God. They have seen back several years ago, about 15, 12, 15 years ago, they saw God's, uh, God's prophet Elijah defeat the prophets of Baal there on the mountain in that contest. And yet the people are hanging on. For all the warnings, for all the works of God, they're hanging on to their belief in Baal. The king at this time is a son of Ahab and Jezebel. He's the second son. His older brother Ahaziel was the king that came to the throne and lasted for two years. You remember he fell through the roof, the lattice on the roof, fell for in an injury and ended up consulting Beelzebub in Ekron and the prophet said, you're going to die, you're not going to recover. And so he died after two years, and the son, the next brother, Jehoram or Joram, whatever you have in scriptures, he'll be given both ways. He comes to the throne, and he's going to rule for 12 years. The scene that we have right now, he's the ruler. He is not a good king. We read about him that when he came to the throne, he removed one altar of Baal. That's it. But he removed one out of the temple area. But we read that uh, he didn't follow through. In fact, he is said to, in the scriptures to be this type of guy. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He made Israel to sin. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who was a previous king that did wickedness. In fact, in the story that we have in 2 Kings 3, if you go back there, when he sends messengers to find out what's happening, what's going to happen in a battle, Elisha's response is, why don't you go to the prophets you always go to? You keep on consulting Baal. Why do you come to me now? Because Baal didn't give you what you wanted to hear? And so this man is given over to Baal worship. In fact, when he is done ruling, they still have a lot of Baal idolatry going on in the nation. The people are still following that type of religion. They're still sinning against God. They're still going against the word of God. And then when you come to 2 Kings chapter 6, the bad stuff is, man, they're eating unclean animals. I know it's out of desperation. They're eating their own kids. I understand that they're under a siege, but they have gone all the way down to the depths. The king himself is said in this passage to wear a garment of repentance. And some say, see, he was responding. I don't think he was responding good at all. Look at the story. It says in verse 30, it came to pass when the king heard the words of the woman that he rent his clothes. The idea is that he is walking up here like on the balcony area and the woman's down below and he's, they, they have this interchange and he is so distraught that they're killing babies and eating their own kids, he rips his clothes, which was a sign of, of great angst and, and great trauma in, in that Bible days. He rips his clothes and they see something. When the king rips his clothes, they see he's wearing sackcloth. That is the, the, the mourner's, the repenter's garment. But they didn't catch it. They didn't see it before. It's the idea that, that it is probably hidden and the people are caught off guard. This king is, is doing something, but it doesn't, sure doesn't seem like, yeah, he's wearing the gown of repentance, but it's not open. He's not leading in repentance. It's a secret type of thing. And then when the things go worse when he's there and it gets worse for him, look what he says in verse 33. 
He makes a comment, if he's really repentant, if he's really brokenhearted, one in verse 31, he blames Elijah, Elisha for it. And then in verse 33, he makes this comment. He says, behold, this evil is of the Lord. What should I wait upon the Lord any longer? Why should I do that? There is no spiritual sensitivity. He's going through the motions. He's doing an expression internally in a hidden way that I'm, that I'm repentant. But soon as things don't turn out immediately, he blames God. He blames Elisha for the difficulty. There's, there's no real repentance here. There's no, there's no idea of God, this is my fault. We have done something wrong. And he's blaming the very people who in the last few months has been their protectors, has been the best friend he's had to help provide and protect him from the enemy's attack. He's a, he's a, he'll be a modern type of guy. Going to church, having the display of, okay, I'm, I have the, the appearance of worship and the appearance of wanting to do what's right, but then as soon as things don't go right, he's mad at God. And so here's this fellow who has no, no response where he, in his heart, and the people have no response where they're sensitive, they're making bad choices, and he's blaming God for it. And he even says, why should I wait upon the Lord, which indicates something to me. He has been told by Elisha, there has been conversations already. That if he's saying this is Elisha's fault, they have had conversations already about why this is happening. He has been told the bad news about this invasion as a consequence, and he is upset with Elisha, God's spokesman, God's messenger. He is blaming God for all this. He understands there had to be conversations already. There had to be messages that were given already. And so here this individual is having, having difficulties. The people are having difficulties because they have made some bad choices. They are continuing in their bad choices. Their suffering is discipline, is God chastening them, and instead of responding in the right way, they're blaming God. They're blaming others. They're getting upset. Instead of saying, wait a minute, if there's things that are happening in my life that are wrong, my first reaction should be, is there something in my life that is displeasing to the Lord? Am I doing something? Do I have an attitude? Do I have, do I have a, an action that is the Lord's way of getting my attention through this difficulty so as to purge me, to cleanse me, to make me pure? That is not the king's attitude. That is not the people's response. And so as a result, their suffering is continuing and intensifies because they have made some bad, bad decisions and sinful decisions in their life. There's a second lesson that stands out as the story unfolds. It is this, salvation is always and only from the Lord. They're in a desperate situation. How are they going to get out of this famine? Are they going to go and make a token of peace with Ben-Hadad? Are they going to be able to manipulate, do some political maneuvering? Not at all. What happens is, in the desperate situation, he says, he makes a comment, why should I wait any longer upon the Lord? He's been told. Elisha has been telling him, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. And he is questioning whether he should wait on the Lord. And so what happens as the story unfolds, and the king has heard about the babies, he's gotten upset, we already read, and he has said, he has said, I'm going to make sure Elisha's head is going to roll. And he's sending messengers. If you read the text, after he makes the comment, he says, you know, um, <coughs> his head shouldn't stand on him. Verse 32, Elisha is at his house with the elders of the city. And <coughs> the king sends a man from before him, but before the messenger comes, Elisha says to the elders, see you how this son of a murderer, that's the king, has sent to take away my head. 
Look, when the messenger comes, hold the door. Don't let him in because the king's going to come right after and I want to talk to the king. And so Elisha's entertaining these people. They bolt the door and the king comes after the axeman comes and the axeman can't get in. And Elisha and the king says, why should I wait any longer? You've been telling me, wait on the Lord, repent. Why should I do that? <coughs> and Elijah, Elisha talks to him, explains to him, he says, listen, in 24 hours, everything's going to be okay. God will provide. God will turn this around. You can't, I can't, but God is going to perform a miracle. Well, one of the men who's, who's with the king, he disbelieves it. He says it's impossible. How can you say that the price of food is going to drop that drastically? Read the next couple verses. How can you say that there's going to be plenty? It's an impossibility. This is such a desperate situation. And Elisha says to him, he says, it's going to happen. But because you don't believe the word of the Lord, you're going to see it happen, but you're never going to enjoy any of the food that comes to the gate. You're not going to, you're not going to partake of this deliverance. And so what happens is the story emphasizes at the beginning and at the end that exactly what Elisha predicted happened to that very courtman, that very man that doubted, who questioned, who didn't believe. And so we read about it, the prediction, and at the end of the chapter, it's amazing that he gives several chapters to the very discipline that that man, under, that man receives just as a lesson to us that, hey, listen, when God says something, it's going to happen. Salvation is of the Lord. It comes only of the Lord. But that ha what it involves is that very night, while all that scene is going on in the city, it all of a sudden shifts and it takes us to four men outside the city. There's four different, uh, different uh, lepers that are out there. And it gives us a story that these lepers are sitting outside the gate and they're having conversation. And uh, it picks up their story and it says in verse 3, there were four lepers, men at the entering of the gate of the city. They said unto another, why should we sit here until we die? By the way, Jewish tradition gives us the name of these people. It's not, it's not certain, but Jewish tradition says it is a man that we've just read about in the previous couple chapters. It's Gehazi and his three sons. Okay, we don't know if that's true, but it's interesting that the Jews said that he would be a leper, which the scriptures have predicted, and his own children. And so in the story, <coughs> they're outside the gate, and they have to make a choice. They're looking and saying, we're in a desperate situation. Do we do door number one, door number two, door number three? Door number one, they say, why don't we go into the city? But if we go into the city, we're going to die. Everybody else, the people are dying of a famine, much less they could, they could kill us because we're lepers. Uh, if we stay right here, we're going to die because we're caught in between a siege. We're on the outside of the gates and we're going to starve here. So they do door number three. Let's go to the enemy's camp. The enemy may have mercy on us. They may have pity. They may kill us, but we're going to die either way. So let's go to the enemy's camp and maybe they'll throw us a bone or two, literally. Maybe they'll give us some food. So they choose door number three. They go to the enemy's camp, and when they get to the enemy's camp, they find out that it's totally deserted. The enemy have left. And it tells us why that happened. Look at verse 6. The, the lepers don't know this, but the story writer tells us, For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots, the noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, oh, the king of Israel hired against us the king of the Hittites, the kings of the Egyptians to come. They heard such a loud sound of armies that they think it's several armies coming against them. And it says, wherefore, they arose and fled in the twilight 
That's not, in, that's not usual. You don't march at night typically in this region. They left their tents. That's not normal. They left their horses. If you want to get away, why wouldn't you ride your horse? They left the asses, even the camp as it was, and they fled for their lives. In other words, put one word over that. They panicked. They were in such a panic, God-induced panic, and it says, and when the lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went from one tent and did eat and drink and woo, carried the silver and gold and raiment, went and hid it, came to another, entered into that tent, carried that away, went and hid it, and here they are, they've hit a bonanza. Everything is left. And God did this miracle of this army hearing such a loud voice, a loud noise, and put such a panic in their hearts that the Jews win the battle without even raising any of their weapons. It's a miracle of God. It's an amazing deliverance, a rescue by God Almighty. If, if you kind of make a parallel here, okay, let's just make some observations. How God rescued the Jews from certain death. They are facing a real disaster because of their sinful choices. They have chosen to follow other gods, to do their own thing. And as a result, they're being attacked by this mortal enemy, the armies of Ben-Hadad, the Syrians. They are facing physical starvation. They are individuals that death is starting to happen around them. And they're seeing their own people die. They're in a situation where they don't have an ability. Even when they're told by the prophet, this is going to be resolved in 24 hours, even the king's courtier says, it's impossible. This can't be done. Nobody can rescue us from this terrible situation. So rescue is impossible. But God predicted through the prophet that there's going to be a rescue. And then once the rescue takes place, there's going to be great changes within 24 hours. The price of the food will drop, there will be plenty to eat, and there's going to be total, total escape from this situation. And it was going to be a miracle. Now can I make a, an analogy without forcing anything on the text, but jump and say, in a spiritual sense, has God rescued us? Has God performed a miracle for our benefit? Because of our sinful choices that we disobeyed the Lord, that we chose to do uh, different from the Lord. We are attacked not by a mortal enemy, but a spiritual enemy. A spiritual enemy that is coming against us. That Satan is trying to oppose us. We face spiritual starvation. Where Jesus kept on saying time and again, I'm going to give you water of life. I'm going to give you bread of life. Without what I provide, you're never going to get into heaven. But I will give you the sustenance that gets you into heaven. That God as a result of, of giving us what we deserve, we're, we're apart from him. We're separated from him. We're facing the imminency of death and damnation. We have no ability to stop it on our own. We rescue is seemingly impossible. No church can get rid of our sins. No preacher can take away our sins. No parent, no, no good deeds, no money in the plate. Nothing that we do, for there, there is nothing within our own ability to turn this around. God years ago predicted a rescue, that he would send his only begotten son to come into the world to provide a miracle of provision for us. A provision that he says that once you take what I provide, the rescue, great changes will take place in your life. And God performed that rescue by having Jesus Christ come to the earth and Jesus Christ give of his life, sacrifice, go to the grave, and miraculously be brought alive again so that you can, and I can be freed from this imminent death that would take, and, take away our life forever and ever and place us in damnation. 
And so God is doing this wonderful work of grace that is available, that's known, and brings us back to the thought, whether it be the physical rescue of the Jews, whether it be the spiritual rescue that God has provided for us, it is always a work of God and only a work of God. So you wonder then, why do people go to church and insist that by going to church they can get themselves to heaven? Why do we think, why do we have the audacity to believe we're good enough and we don't need God's provisions to get to heaven? That we are better than the work of Jesus Christ, than the person of Jesus Christ, who he says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by him. Who in this room would have the audacity to say, well, that's not me, I'm better than Christ? That's amazing. That's amazing. You know, that, that anybody, that any of us would dare think we can get to heaven on our own when Jesus says you can't. That Jesus says he is the way. He provides. Listen, salvation and rescue spiritually is a work that only God can do. We can't do it for ourselves. No church can do it. It's coming through God's miraculous provision. Now for them, it was a physical. For us, it is a spiritual rescue from imminent death. And thank God he provides that rescue. It brings us to a lesson, to a third lesson out of this text by comparison, by analogy, that sharing the good news of God's rescue will always result in a good conscience. Again, the story is unfolding. The story now focuses the last half of the chapter that uh, we've had the, the layout, the enemy's there, Elisha's in trouble, he's being accused and attacked for it, even though it's the people's fault, their choice, and God has worked a miracle, but nobody knows about it except for the four lepers. And the bulk of chapter 7 focuses on these four lepers telling us about their story, that they came to the deserted camp. They're in this camp, and they're finding that this camp is pretty luxurious. It is a lot different in the ancient day world, in the ancient Near East, the A&E. It's a lot different than what we have today. In fact, Herodotus was writing about 400 B.C. and describing military camps of their day. I'm going to give you a little bit of an idea of what's going on here. He describes military camps that they went into. It was found many tents richly adorned with furniture of gold, silver, couches covered with plates of gold, many golden bowls, goblets, drinking vessels. On the carriages were bags containing gold, silver kettles. The bodies of the slain found bracelets and chains and golden ornaments, not to mention embroiled apparel. It, when we think of a military camp, we go Spartan. It's going to be move in, move out. No, when they did even sieges, they would go and they would bring their, their bounty with them. They would bring with them their riches. They weren't going to be, you know, if we're going to create discomfort, it's not for us, it's for the people inside the wall. And so this camp is one of those ancient camps where there's a lot of beautiful things there, a lot of wealth, a lot of abundance in that camp. The lepers come out, and they find after they've, they've been destitute, they've been living outside the city in a shanty or a shack, they've, uh, they've had no food, they come to the camp and they find everything was left. And again, that amazes me that you even leave your horses if you want to get out of there quick. So the fear is absolutely a, a God-induced fear. And so the, the lepers take advantage of it. They start plundering the situation. They eat up their fill, and it says that they took some of the items, and they hid the items, and they did it not once, but they did it twice, at least. If you look at the text, the text they did it again. And so they're enjoying the benefits of this God-provided miracle of rescue. And they're enthused, they're excited, they're having a great time, and then it dawns on them. This is exciting, this is good, but look at the next verse. 
where they make a comment that they are, they all of a sudden it strikes them in verse 9. Then said one of them to the others, we do not well. This day is a day of good tidings, and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief is probably going to come upon us. Now therefore come, that we may go and tell the king's household. And so they realize that, hey, keeping this good news of this rescue to ourselves, this is not good. This is not, not helpful. And they return to tell the city. Now what's amazing, remember, they haven't been allowed to live in the city. They've been rejects. They've been outcasts because of their leprosy. But they're going to go to that city and they're going to tell those people in the city, hey, God has done a miracle. God has provided a rescue because they know we do not well if we keep this to ourselves. God has made a provision. God has done a miracle and we need to share this good news with others. So they go back and they do it for several reasons. They know the people in the city need to hear. The people in the city don't know what's happened. It's nighttime. The people in the city think the camp is still, is still filled. They're, they're starving inside. They're boiling their babies inside. They're in desperate measures. They, they have no hope. They have no peace. We need to tell them they don't know the news. They aren't aware of what's going on. It reminds me of a story in history. The King George, he was writing in his diary around the time of July 4th of that week of 1776. You remember that day in history, yes, no? You ever hear of July 4th? Okay, July 2nd, 3rd, 4th. In his, in his journal, he wrote these words. He said, nothing of any importance or consequence occurred at this time. He just didn't know what was happening in America. Okay, did something of great consequence take place that he was unaware of? Absolutely. The people inside the city walls, they don't know of something that is of great consequence happened outside. The only ones who know are these destitute, undeserving rejects, according to the people inside, they've got the news and they say, we do not well to keep it to us. And they knew that if they keep the news to themselves, this is wrong. This is wrong on our part. Even though these people in, inside the city have not been our best of friends lately because we're diseased and we've had to live outside, we have an obligation to those people. They're dying. Those people are desperate. And if we don't share the good news with them, we're wrong. We're wrong. And we may suffer some consequences for our sinful choice of selfishness. So what they do is they immediately, it says, they immediately go to the city at night and they talk to the gatesmen. They tell the gatesmen what they found. And so they give that information. And what happens is, by giving the information, you know there's going to be great joy. Well, they tell the gatesman, the gatesman takes it to the king, and the king, he immediately sees this as a trap. He's, he's very cautious. The king says, oh, they, they set a trap. We've done this in our history. We vacated a camp. We come out of the city, we're going to get there and look at the camp, and they're going to come from the bushes and they're going to kill us once we're outside the protection of the walls. So they, he, the advisors say, what you can do is send a group of men out, just a handful of men. Let them go out search. They go out and search with what few horses they are. They even take the, uh, and go all the way to the River Jordan, some 25 miles, and they say and they see when they report back that not only have the Syrians gone back across the river, but there is a complete trail of all the stuff that they dropped by the roadside as they were fleeing. Some of the stuff they try to carry home with them. And so there's this trail of all these provisions for 25 miles. 
With that news, the population hears that the enemy is gone, the gates are opened, and everybody in enthusiasm is rushing out to get to the food, to get to the provision made. Oh, by the way, there's a man who is in charge of the gate. He's the courtier. He's the one that earlier that day at Elisha's house when the king came with the executioner, he's the guy that said to Elisha, it's impossible. How can this be that in 24 hours food prices will be normal again? It can't happen. It's impossible. And Elisha said, you shall see it, but you shall not participate in it. And uh, warned him. He's the guy that unlocks the gate. And when he opens the gate, he sees it, but the crowds are so enthusiastic. Remember what happens to them? They trample on him and kill him. You know, because it, it, it's like Good Friday shopping. Okay, he opened the door, and the crowd came barreling through, and he gets run over. And so the emphasis of the story is, hey, God's word is completely fulfilled. And so you have this story unfolding. But in the lesson that stands out is the, the, the lepers tell their, their kinsmen, and I, it, it just strikes me. They don't know everything that happened. They don't know the full account. The, fill, the full account is given later on by the prophet Jeremiah or whoever is writing this book. They don't know why the enemy's camp is empty. They don't know how it worked, but it worked. God did a miracle. Even though they don't know if others are going to believe them. They go to the city gate, they're, gonna tell, they're sharing the news. They don't know the response on the inside. And the response on the inside is very typical. There's a hesitancy. There's, are you sure it's too good to be true? They're, they're individuals who have been rejected before. They're individuals that they, they just knew this much. We have to tell the others what we know, what we've experienced. We know there's enough food for everyone. There's a rescue here that is provided for all. We do not well by not telling you. Now, what you do with that news, that's your choice. But we've got to tell you. And they shared the news. They gave that news of that great rescue. The bottom line is this. We have a spiritual rescue that is more amazing than the physical rescue that was done for the Jews at this time. Our spiritual rescue is done by Jesus Christ, coming as a babe, giving his life, resurrecting, and providing us eternal life, and saying that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is enough forgiveness for everyone. What should we do? We should share that news. We do not well to keep it to ourselves. We should tell others about it. We should let them know. We should let them hear the real message of Christmas. Not just that there was a babe born and it's a good time to give gifts because the wise men came to give gifts at Christmas, which they didn't. They came two years later. But that whole, that whole thing, we need to be giving the good news of God's rescue. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. He was on a rescue mission. And he provided it. We need to be sharing that. You know, there's a book that's called, called The Image Makers by William Meyer. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's talking about the Coca-Cola Pepsi Wars of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And he uses a lot of different, different he, he talks about cultural aspects and about how these two giants in the, in the marketing business, how they spent money by the scads to let the world know that their one product was the better product. Yeah. Now, I know I, if I say there's not much difference, some of you are going to throw those hymn books at me. Okay. But they, they were promoting their product. Back in the late 70s, some of you remember this commercial. 
Pepsi had done a commercial where there's this guy, there's this plane flying over, and this young couple standing amongst others in a, in a, in a small town setting, and they're this, you know, amongst a bunch of other cowboys, this young cowboy and his girlfriend are looking up, and the plane says, will you marry me, Sue? And then it shows these two, uh, these, this young couple making calved eyes to each other, and, you know, they're in love. And the, it was such a moving commercial. Well, Coke got, heard, got wind of it, that there was, it was coming out. And they heard about what, it, what this was. So they countered with the Mean Joan Green commercial. Any of you ever hear about it? See it? Mean Joan Green's coming off the thing and the kid offers him the Coke, right? And he takes it all in one gulp. And then what's he do to the kid? He gives him his jersey. Yeah, and that became the big hit. Do you know these companies, as of just the last week, they spent in this year alone over a billion to two billion dollars in advertisement? Because they believe their product is different. They believe it's an important product. They're trying to make money, I understand. But they're trying to convert us to their soda or pop, whatever word you want to use, okay? They, 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 they really believe in their product. How much, how much would you spend to get the gospel of Christ out to your neighbors? How much would you spend of your time, of your energy, to say, hey, I know of something that really makes a difference? I know something that can satisfy your real thirst. I know something that some of you are, you're, you're, you're craving to find peace in possessions and in relationships with, with multiple people or in things. But I know, I've experienced where the real rescue is provided by God, where he can satisfy our souls and give us abundance. And I want to tell you about this Jesus which is something we should be doing. Now, take this whole message and put it together. There's, just make those three points and make some applications. One is this. You and I need to be careful that we, make, we avoid making sinful choices that could result in some form of chastisement. Because God does say, you will reap what you sow. So you and I should constantly be sensitive and say, God, is my attitude right? Is my, are my actions right? Am I pleasing you or am I going on thin ice? Am I disobeying you? We should, everyone in this room should accept the spiritual rescue that God provides through Jesus Christ. Every one of us needs him to be our savior. We cannot get ourselves to heaven. You know, this, this holiday season, there are some churches that are celebrating Mary. They're talking about how great she is. They have the magnificent will be, will be brought out. Let me point out and remind you that even for all the heroicism that they show about Mary and they, how they deify her and magnify her, she says in the Magnificent, she says, my soul rejoices in my God and my Savior. She needed a Savior. She was blessed amongst women. That doesn't mean she was sinless. Every single one of us is a sinner. Every single one of us needs a Savior. That Savior is Jesus Christ. He is the one that can give you forgiveness. And you and I ought not dare reject him and say, I'm good enough on my own. We should accept that free gift that came in the form of a babe who was born to die, gave his life, and provides for us eternal life by confessing we're sinners and asking him to be our Savior. Then what we should do is personally share that good news of God's salvation, of God's rescue, with a friend, with a classmate. You know, there's different times of the year that make it even easier. Christmas is an easier time to share the gospel. People are thinking Christ. People are thinking about the babe. Well, then you tell them the truth. 
You let them know exactly what it is and what the story really is about. Why, why don't you share your personal story? Why don't you in your Christmas cards put tracks? Why don't you in your Christmas card put a letter of witness and of testimony? Why don't you this Christmas season, why don't you give an audio message? Get a disc that presents the gospel. Get something and share it as part of your gift giving. Give, give the gospel out in some way, shape, or form. Give stories like, he's taken my seat. Give some video presentation to your neighbors as you give out the cookies. Do something to get out the gospel this season. Why don't you invite them to a service where the gospel is preached? We on Christmas Day and Christmas Eve, we will make a very concerted effort to present the gospel in its simplicity so as you bring friends and relatives to those days where some will only go to church once in a while, they'll pick Christmas usually, you bring them, we will share the gospel very clearly so that you have an opportunity to talk with them even afterwards or beforehand. Why don't you do this? Why don't you go and grab the flyers? from the Christmas reenactment. What an easy way for you to share the gospel. To invite somebody, some neighbor, some coworker, give them one of those flyers and say to them, we're doing this presentation on the 15th, 16th, I'll go with you, come be my guest, go and do supper before or afterwards, and if you're not involved with the program, but invite them and let them be your guest and we will present a very, very, very clear gospel presentation of the reason why Christ came. In fact, I've had them move the table of all the brochures right outside these doors. And my encouragement to you, my invitation to you, my challenge to you this morning is take the flyers. Take the flyers and give them to classmates. Take the flyers and give them to neighbors. Take the flyers and give them to people that you've met at the stores and do a verbal invite to people. Will everybody come? Probably not. Some will be skeptical like King Joram. But there will be those who respond who for all eternity might say to you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with me. Don't keep the good news to yourself. Don't hold it to yourself. Listen, you and I ought not to silence that which God has created to make beautiful music of the gospel. We are his workmanship. He is the master orchestrator. He wants to let you be a masterpiece in front of others declaring the gospel, bringing out the music of what is real joy. What will you do with it this Christmas season? Will you keep it to yourself and hoard it or will you give it out to others?